Welcome to the Daily Stoic Podcast, where each weekday we bring you a meditation inspired by the ancient Stoics, a short passage of ancient wisdom designed to help you find strength and insight here in everyday life. And on Wednesdays, we talk to some of our fellow students of ancient philosophy, well-known and obscure, fascinating and powerful. With them, we discuss the strategies and habits that have helped them become who they are and also to find peace and wisdom in their actual lives. But first, we've got a quick message from one of our sponsors. The Daily Stoic is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. One of the cool things about podcasts is that you can multitask while you're listening, but depending on what you're doing right now, like for instance, if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing. You could be getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $700 on average and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join over 29 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $698 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the job. In fact, we were just hiring for Daily Stoke and we found our new podcast editor on LinkedIn Jobs because LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. Over 2.5 small businesses use LinkedIn for hiring like we do, as I was just saying, because LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours, sometimes even faster than that. You can hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash stoic. That's linkedin.com slash stoic to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Take this motto to heart. Of people who rise to position of power, there are two types, those who think they can do it alone and those who know that is insane. This is as true today as it was when the ancient historian Cassius Dio was writing his Roman history in the early 200s AD. In it, Dio examines what differentiated Marcus Aurelius from Commodus. Given Commodus's deranged reign, it might seem like he was destined to fail from the beginning. But Dio points out something fascinating about this young man. He was not naturally wicked, he says, but on the contrary, as guileless as any man that ever lived. When his father died, Dio continues, Marcus left him many guardians, among whom were numbered the best men of the Senate. But their suggestions and counsels Commodus rejected. This was the critical difference between father and son, Dio believed. Even when he was emperor, he writes of Marcus, Marcus showed no shame or hesitation about resorting to a teacher. Seneca's instructions were along the same lines. Hear and take heart this useful and wholesome motto, he said, 
cherish some man of high character and keep him ever before your eyes, living as if he were watching you and ordering all your actions as if he beheld them. Though Marcus never mentioned Seneca in his meditations, it is clear that he heard and took this motto to heart. The first 17 entries in meditations, 10% of the entire book, are spent reflecting on the men and women of high character he kept before his eyes over his lifetime. From his deathbed, he was arranging the best and the brightest of them to advise his son. He knew he was nothing without Antoninus and Rusticus and Herodus and Atticus and Fronto and Apollonius. Their greatness guided him to his greatness because he allowed them to, because he wanted them to. And that's the question for you today. Are you living by this motto? Are your actions guided by someone of high character? Do you show no hesitation to resorting to a high teacher? Or do you think you can do it alone? And look, that's one of the reasons I keep a bust of both Marcus Aurelius and Seneca on my desk. I want to put a man or a woman of high character up there for display to inspire me to act as if they are watching my actions, as Marcus said, to be as the ruler upon which we make crooked straight, as Seneca said. And you can actually check out the statues I have. We sell them in the Daily Stoic store. Go to store.dailystoic.com and you'll see them there on the front or just type in statues. Don't have to get these ones. Check out any. I do think the importance of statues is an underrated one, and it's why we talk about it here so much. Daily Stoic. Hey, it's Ryan Holiday. Welcome to another episode of the Daily Stoic podcast. Today's guest is actually someone that I encountered because he had reached out to me when we did a consult about a book. He is working on, uh, you know, as you know, my day job is that I am a writer. I have a company called Brass Check, and we've worked with many, many authors and brands over the years. And I don't do it as much anymore. Um, either I, I have people on my team do it, or I have transitioned onto other projects. I really find that you only have so much time in the day. Where are you going to spend that energy? It's been an experience, you know, building this business up, uh, working on all sorts of cool projects, and then having to say no, right, to lucrative opportunities, interesting opportunities to focus on family, to focus on writing, to focus on this bookstore. And anyways, uh, a couple of years ago, I did this talk with Ali Abdal, um, who is a very popular YouTuber and was thinking about writing a book. He also interviewed me about Ego is the Enemy. There's a video that you can check out. Um, He's a fascinating guy. First and foremost, uh, not just because he has this big YouTube channel, but he went to Cambridge. Then he went to medical school. He's a doctor. And yet he spends most of his time making these self-improvement videos on YouTube, which have done more than 150 million views. Uh, he is the host of the Deep Dive with Ali Abdal podcast, which you should also listen to. He is... Uh, Ali Abdal on all platforms, A-L-I-A-B-D-A-A-L. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to Ali is that um, YouTube is something we're obviously doing a lot more of at Daily Stoic. And whenever I'm exploring something, a new platform, whether it's TikTok, which we're also doing, or whether it was getting into email lists, which we obviously did a long time ago when I was writing my first book. What I do is exactly what Ollie did to me when we connected, which is I try to find someone who is very successful at the thing, who is doing a really good job, and I try to find a way to learn from them. I want to find out from a best-in-class person 
what the best in class practices are. And so one of the reasons I want to talk to Ali is, is learning about this platform. Another person I've gotten a lot of advice from is Casey Neistat. But, but the point is, I always try to learn from the people who have done something well. Um, as I talk about in Ego is the Enemy, if you think you're perfect, if you think you know everything, if you think you're just naturally good at stuff, you will not get better, you will not learn. And you, when you do learn, it will be the hard way through painful trial and error. So as a way to skip that, that was one of the reasons I have been talking to Ali and I feel like our relationship has been reciprocal and uh, I wanted to bring you a conversation with me and Ali. Anyways, enjoy this interview and we'll talk soon. Well, it's good to talk. Uh, what time is it there? It is four o'clock in the afternoon. What time is it at your place? Uh, it is 10 o'clock in the morning. Nice. So so let's start with your uh, somewhat unconventional path, because I'm always interested. And th there are a few well-known writers. I think Michael Crichton was the doctor. There's a few uh, people who do a thing that's really, really hard. Like, for instance, uh, this is different than what I did, right? I dropped out of college to pursue what I'm pursuing. Yeah. But I've got to imagine that once you spend the time to go through medical school, it is even scarier to leave that life, uh, to focus on this other stuff because the, the immense sunk cost of the time and energy and money. Yeah, it was, it was pretty terrifying. So it was like six, six years of medical school and then two years of actually working as a doctor. And then when I took a break from it, I sort of, in the back of my mind, I was thinking it's just a break, but I was also kind of thinking, Hmm, if this like internet career goes well, then maybe this is more than just a break. And in the last few months, I've had a lot of soul searching to do to try and figure out what the hell am I, am I going to do with my life? Because being a doctor was such a huge part of my identity that, you know, any, any you know, when people would ask me what I do, I'd say, oh, I'm a doctor. And then and oh, on the side, I make YouTube videos and on the side, I'm writing this book. But now it's like, is that really, is that really the identity I want, I want to hold on to? And so I've, yeah, I'm, I've been leaning, leaning towards shedding the doctor thing. So now, like I was at a wedding last night, people asked, oh, what are you doing these days? And I was, oh, oh, what do you do? And I said, well, I used to be a doctor, but then I quit to be a YouTuber. And that was a conversation starter. Um, and that's now how I've started, at least internally, identifying myself. But it was, it was definitely very, very scary to even think in those ways. Because I guess when something is so much a part of your identity, you don't want to, don't want to let it go. Well, I have a bunch of questions about that. But I have, to, I have to imagine that one of the benefits of saying I'm a doctor is that it's sort of a universally respected profession. And, and mm -hmm. even beyond being respected, it's a very well understood profession. So like, uh, I, I found that like the transition between, oh, I'm in marketing and, oh, I'm a writer was not just, uh, you know, if I wanted to be left alone, if I want to be left alone, I just say, oh, I'm in marketing or something mm -hmm. like that. Right. Because then people are like, oh, okay, I'm in insurance. Let's talk yeah. about sports. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and, and so there, there, when there's a curiosity gap or a, a lack of understanding, it can be both good and bad. But then it leads to a lot of uh, it, it can it can also plan your insecurities, right? Because then people go, well, are you a famous writer? Are you a well-known YouTuber? Do you make a lot of money doing that? Right. So it kind of it when you when you have an easily identifiable, identifiable profession, you can kind of hide behind that. And then when yeah. you go out in these uh, more on these limbs, then that insecurity can come to play. Have you felt that? Yeah, uh, a, li a little bit. I. I know what you're saying. I think, I think for me and you, uh, I, I suspect for you, when you started identifying yourself as a writer, you were already like phenomenally successful. Is that, is that fair to say? 
Yeah, I was probably three or four books in before I started telling people that I was an author because you get this question, yeah. you know, people go, uh, well, have I read anything that you've done? And and there's a joke, I forget who said it, but it's like, why don't you tell me your most impressive accomplishment and I'll let you know that I haven't heard I haven't heard of it, right? Like, <laughs> like because you can be successful at something and not be known to billions of people. So it's, yeah. I, I definitely waited before I talked about it just because- I generally don't like having to explain myself. Mm, interesting. Yeah. So for me, I didn't, it was, it, it wasn't until I'd been doing YouTube for four years and I just, you know, had basically just hit 2 million subscribers that I started identifying form like as a, you know, I used, I used to be a doctor and then I quit to be a YouTuber sure. because I feel like now if now I kind of, I kind of like it when people are a bit like, Ooh, wait, what? Yes. You know, you can, you, you, that, that makes money. But like, yeah. <laughs> just, just, just waiting for the follow-up questions. I get a, I get a real kick out of it because now I've got that confidence that, okay, this is objectively doing well. Whereas if I'd quit medicine to do YouTube, when I had 3000 subscribers, I probably would have felt a lot more weird about it. Um, so now I actually, I, I enjoy, I enjoy that process of people not really knowing what, or, what what's going on. And it often leads to more interesting conversations and yeah. It is illustrative though, like, right. Like not just parents or relatives or random strangers, when they hear someone does something, they want to know, one, do you make a lot of money at it? Yeah. Two, are you famous at it? It's yep. like 50th on the list would be like, are you good at it? Do you yep. enjoy doing it? Like when, when we, we want to, it's like instinctively, we want to see where does this sit in the status hierarchy? Yeah. Not, you know, does it contribute positively to the world? Right. That's so true. Yeah. I'm, I mean, I, I, I find this in myself as well. So I've, I've recently moved to London and a lot of people that I'm friends with now are internet friends who also don't have real jobs, i.e. they're creators or entrepreneurs, they run startups or sure. they're writers. And if I'm meeting someone new and I find they're running a startup, I find my brain is automatically going into overdrive, trying to figure out, are they rich? Are they successful? Yes. You know, at what stage is the startup? Have they got funding? Series A, you know, Series B. I wonder if they took any money off the table. Oh wow, that must mean the network at least like five million. And I find my brain doing this, and I'm just like, what the, what the hell am I doing? Like, let's stop playing the status games. Let's take a step back and be like, oh, what's that like? Are you enjoying it? Are you having fun? Are you fulfilled? How do you how do how do how do you keep it interesting? Yeah, um, I, I found myself going through this the other day because a, a friend of mine, uh, not a close friend, uh, but is running for public office. And so mm. in America, when you run for public office, I don't know how it works in the UK. But you have to fill out all these insane financial disclosures that basically state like what you own, what your net worth is or whatever. So this was all public. And so I caught myself um, and it was like, here's what he makes from this. Here's what he makes from this. And you can find yourself, you know, I, it's to not compare yourself to others, even though we know it is the source, not just of misery, but often distracting us from what we want to do and what makes us happy it is extremely hard to turn that part of your brain off. Mm. Yeah. Have you, have you, have you got any tips on how, like, if you, if you find yourself doing it, how you then like stop, I imagine this is quite a stoicism type type thing as well. It very, it very much is. I mean, what I try to remind, what I try to think about is um, at the end of the day, there are lots of very, very rich, successful people whose work uh, is either garbage or worse than garbage, right? Like in that they actively like, you can make a lot of money doing terrible things. Not, not, I don't just mean quality. I mean, you can make yeah. a lot of money doing things that are actively harmful to the world. Hmm. And so um, when you think about what you do, um, the idea that that monetary success is 
success, it, like we already don't believe that, right? Like there's already things you could do that would make you a lot more money that you choose not to do. So you choose to do what you do. And then it's just interesting that then we try to compare apples and oranges as far as financial outcomes at the end of it to see like who's better, who's more successful. So when I was thinking about this person, I just tried to remember and remind myself of first off, um, I wasn't waking up this morning thinking I don't have enough, right? <laughs> like that wasn't even close to a thought in my mind. In fact, the opposite of the thought was in my mind. And then secondarily, do you actually respect this person's work? Like, do you respect their contributions? Um, and, and in this case, uh, less so. So like the fact that they have been compensated quite well for it is irrelevant to me because there's no amount of money that would make me do that thing. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, one one thing that me and, and my brother try to do when we're meeting new people is uh, to not be the one to ask, what do you do? Yes. <laughs> I think like whenever I find myself asking that question, I'm doing that sort of subconscious status uh, kind of hierarchy thing. And actually kinda, trying, to, trying to have a conversation without that. I kind of have another couple of rules that I do where I go like, first off, I just assume everyone is lying because yeah. most of most of the time they fundamentally are like they just are lying or they're they're uh, as part of the marketing and I want to talk to you about this a little bit but as part of the marketing people often uh show an unrepresentative picture so I know you did this on a video recently but people will talk about how much they make but not how much they spend yeah. uh, to make the money that they make so at the end of the day it's all about margins mm. and they, someone could be making more than you but have really bad margins and and thus not actually be uh, worthy of envy but uh so first up I just assume that it's it's all uh, a lie like people are exaggerating people are uh outright uh lying uh, or or there's sort of hidden math there so that sort of takes uh, uh the edge off of it uh for me as well um and and i i just I just sort of go through the world that way. And it might not be true. Um, they they might be actually underestimating, uh, uh, you know, they, they could be making even more than they're saying. But by just telling myself that it's not true, it, it allows me to just go back to what I'm doing. Mm, nice. It's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, but so, okay, so, so you you leave medicine to go into YouTube, but I I would be curious, obviously, uh, although medicine can be a lucrative profession, uh, people tend to go into it because it's a calling or if they feel like they're being of service in some way. Yep. How did you, is that, did you wake up and realize that wasn't why you got into medicine or has that been kind of a struggle for you, the difference between a sort of a more service oriented profession, mm -hmm. especially in the midst of a public health crisis. And then, uh, you know, and a more artistic profession, which I also think is a calling, but they're just different callings. Yeah. So, um, I, th I think being honest, the reasons I went into medicine were not particularly, um, were not particularly sexy, if that makes sense. You know, the sexy reasons for going into medicine, it's a calling. I really want to help people. Um, I, I have friends who had cancer when they were younger and, you know, they're, they have a real personal connection to the profession of medicine and they really want to give back and, and, and so on. It wasn't really like that for me. For me, it was, it was, it, to be honest, it was two things. Number one, Everyone says university is the best time of your life and medical school is six years at uni rather than three years at uni. So I thought, <laughs> hey, twice as much of best time of sure. my life, winning there. Um, and secondly, the thing I was actually really into was coding. I I'd done a lot of like web design-y type web development-y stuff when I was a kid and I tried my best to build my own like tech startup before the word startup was even a thing. Um, and so I was torn between like, do I, do I apply for computer science? And I reasoned at the time that um, being a doctor who codes 
is more interesting than being a random dude who codes. Sure. And so I thought, Hey, you know, medicine seems kind of interesting. I do like science. I do like the idea of helping people. I do like the idea of having a job that's not tied to a desk and that has variety. And I knew people who are doctors. It, it, it seemed, it seemed all right, but that really wasn't the core core reason as to why I did it. Um, and then, and, and so, so I, I ended up getting into getting into med school and having a great time. And I still, even though I went away from it, I don't regret anything. And I still think medicine is a fantastic degree to do at university, even if you don't want to practice medicine at the end of it. Um, How much of it was pressure from other people? I know that that's like, people are like, well, somebody said I should be a lawyer or my parents really wanted me to be a doctor. Was that part of it for you? Not really. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to say at least not explicitly. So for example, my family was never like, Hey, you should be a doctor. But having said that, my mom is a doctor, my dad's a doctor, everyone we knew in our social circles were doctors. Uh, there, there was that implicit um, idea that there aren't, there are no jobs out there other than being a being a doctor, being a lawyer, being an engineer. Right. If someone had said you could go into marketing, I'd have been like, "What? What the hell does that even mean?" Sure. <laughs> if someone says you could study history at university, I'd be like, "What? To become a history teacher?" You know, that was my thinking back then. Sure. And so the options I was choosing from were basically medicine, lawyer, engineer. It wasn't going to be lawyer because I've got a stutter. <laughs> so it was between medicine and engineer. And I didn't really like maths that much, even though I was pretty good at it. So it was like, oh, medicine. Okay, cool. Let's let's go down that route. And and how did the people closest to you who I imagine supported you for long, how did they react to the idea of like, I'm throwing all of this away? <laughs> oh, oh, still, still not well. So for example, almost every other conversation I have with my mom is her you know, ends with her being like, Hey, you know, have you thought about maybe going back into training, maybe applying for residency, that, that kind of thing. And uh, a few months ago, it was every conversation, not every other conversation. And I think she's now coming around to the fact that, especially once I started admitting it to myself, that to be honest, I'm probably never going to be a doctor. She slowly started to come around to it. Cause I think I'd, I, I, I'd sort of strung her along a, for, for a few years, kicking the can down the road saying, Oh, I'm just taking a break. It's all, it's all good. Um, these days, uh, I think, I think people in like, weirdly, it's other doctors who I speak to who are more, are very supportive of the decision. They say, oh my God, you found a way to get out. Cause in the, in the UK, it's not particularly lucrative and the working conditions are quite hard and, you know, state, state fund, funded, funded system. And the NHS is fantastic for, um, the people who benefit from it. But whenever doctors get together, there is a real sense of like, oh my God, this is, uh, you know, the, the system that we're working in compared to people in America and Australia is really not great for doctors. So a lot of doctors are actually like, oh my God, it's so good that you've got this YouTube thing going. Definitely keep going with that. And you've always kind of got medicine as a backup option if you're really desperate. I remember that was something Peter Thiel told me that, you know, so he goes to Stanford undergrad, Stanford law school, gets a job at one of the best law firms in the world. And he was amazed by the contrast of all the people in the world were trying to get into the thing he was in yeah. and inside of it, all, all that everyone was talking about was how to get out of it. Yeah. And, and so it, I think it takes a certain amount of courage because obviously everyone's more or less in agreement that th this is not perfect, but it'd be wonderful to get out, but then something actually prevents people from doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, this is such a standard, standard thing within, within medicine where everyone is sort of talking about how to get out of it. Weirdly, um, a lot of people in medicine see management consulting and finance as their way out of medicine. And I've got a few friends who have done that and they got there and realized, oh my God, everyone working terrible. in management consulting yeah. is trying to get out of it as well. And everyone wants to do a startup <laughs> and, and doing a startup seems to be the, the sort of infinite game that 
I have I haven't spoken to many people who are doing a startup who don't want to continue doing it. May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and Talkspace, the leading virtual therapy provider, is encouraging people to talk it out in therapy. Opening up to a therapist might feel uncomfortable, exhausting, or exhilarating, but one thing's for certain, if you keep talking or texting with a licensed therapist, you'll gain insights and uncover truths you can only find in therapy. If you want some personal breakthroughs and judgment-free support, you can sign up right now for Talkspace. At Talkspace.com, you sign up online, you get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredible incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist, and you do it from the comfort of your home. There's no need to commute to appointments, miss time at work, or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. And to celebrate May, Mental Health Awareness Month, and the power of talking it out in therapy, Talkspace is offering every listener of this podcast 80 bucks off your first month with promo code SPACE80 when you go to Talkspace.com slash stoic. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash stoic to get 80 bucks off your first month with code SPACE80. 80 and show your support for the show. That's Talkspace.com slash Stoic code space 80. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. You could say, right, the obstacle is the way I've always been a student of failure, of things that go wrong. It's so easy to celebrate things going right, but we can learn a lot from when it doesn't go right. Each week, David Duchovny chats with guests like Ben Stiller and Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalyst for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure. Fail better together. Fail better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I can actually push back on that. So every successful person that I have met uh, in the startup world, or uh, this is also in the sports world, uh, but whatever, at the end of it, what they all actually want to do is write books. They all want to have <laughs> books uh, or, or, or be like a, a, an influencer type. Like they want to have a platform. I don't want to, famous isn't the right word, but yeah. I think, I think, I think what I see in, in all of those things is people gravitating towards the illusion of, or deep down the desire for more autonomy over their mm-hmm. lives and yeah. those are three professions, management, consulting, uh, uh, being a lawyer or, um, or, or medicine, that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> where you have zero autonomy whatsoever. You are a slave to a system, to clients, to the grind. And uh, yeah, it is funny. You would leave one profession so, for the other. So on that, on that note, um, I do have, I do have a friend who just, you, you know, successful series B hundred million dollar startup type vibes saying to me that, hey, I want to start a YouTube channel. And I was like, dude, why the hell do you want to start a YouTube channel? And he was like, well, once you've got a funded startup, like surprisingly, your autonomy is limited because you're now beholden to investors. And so I really want my own thing that I can maybe make an online course off of so I can have my own income without it being tied to anyone else. But also on that note, I think I, I think this point you make about how everyone's trying to get more autonomy. I was at a, a YouTuber convention last week and it was a bunch of sort of YouTubers who are all fairly successful by YouTube metrics. And the vibe there was, let's try and figure out a way to build a brand that is distinct from our personal brand, like a merch company or a coffee company or a stationery company, so that we can use our brand to market the, the thing, but that the thing is not dependent on our own personal brand. Because even with you know creators like YouTubers, influencers, it is, in a way, you get into it because of the autonomy, but then you realize, oh crap, I'm continuing on this hamster wheel of content and I'm so entrenched in it now that I would love to build a brand that is actually outside of me. 
Yes. Well, you want to be able to scale what you're doing so it's not so dependent on you. Yeah. Uh, but then you just built it as your name and you can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> so I think everyone's kind of chasing that like next level of autonomy of like freedom of like, oh, once I hit that level, then. But I think I think one thing I like about kind of when I when I hear you on podcasts and and, and read your stuff is that you're not living the sort of traditionally autonomous digital nomad lifestyle. You've got your farm, you've got your kids, you've got the wife, you, you've got a, a like a, a cool lifestyle, but it's, it's, it's not that you have pure autonomy and you, you can do whatever you want. Like you've chosen to get married and have kids. Um, so it's interesting how I think there's like this sweet spot of autonomy. And then after you've done, after you've had your four hour work week, you realize actually there's, I, I imagine there is fulfillment and joy in investing in a community and being part of something local and, and all that stuff. I think that's true. Although I, I tend to find, to go to your point about sort of YouTubers, is that the, the digital nomad lifestyle is actually not very fun. It's certainly, it's not very, it was not fun. Uh, it's not, doesn't, it's not well suited to my personality, but I do tend, I do think that there is something abnormal is the only word I can think of, but like, a person is not supposed to be able to keep all of their possessions in a backpack and go from <laughs> hotel room to hotel room, trip to trip, meeting sort of ephemeral friends or relationships as they as they you know go from one thing to another. I mean, part of uh, uh, there is a nomadic part to the human species, but I also think there's a deeply rooted part of the human species, and I think there is. Uh, Epicurus has this great line. He says that. Uh, uh, each every man flees himself. I think there is a part in that sort of like I'm just going to travel the world and I'm not going to own anything and uh, I'm just going to go from event to event. That is just running away from yourself and being an adult, quite frankly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've kind of had had those thoughts in the back of my mind that oh, what if I what if I travel the world and stuff. Um, but then recently I moved to London, got a lease on the studio space for a year, and now I'm like I, it actually. To, to me, it feels more exciting to be based in London for a whole year where I can build a team in person and do all the stuff yeah. than it does to be traveling and living in a different city every every month. I Maybe like routine and structure and systems. Yeah. And, uh, and, and actually, I find that, I think it was Flaubert, he was saying that uh, you want to be ordered and systematized in what you do so then you can be chaotic in your work. So mm. like if you're tra- if you're uprooted and your life is chaotic, I tend to find that the work uh, actually suffers because you're a mess. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I guess I've not really done the uproot. Well, although, you know, since moving, uh, in the last, like last, like two, three weeks, I feel like the work, i.e. writing the book, doing YouTube videos has taken a back seat in terms of like life in turmoil, but now I'm sure. kind of settling into a routine gym in the morning studio in the afternoon. Oh, it's, it's good vibes. So, so as you, because you, you did both for a while. You did sort of medicine and yeah. uh, YouTube. Was part of what drew you to it the idea that like you were in charge of your own life, like you got to do what you wanted, say what you wanted, and and unlike say yeah, being a television presenter, like mm-hmm. you have control of what you do and ownership of the audience. Yeah, yeah. I think really the thing I was chasing was freedom because, um, like, ever since my first day of med school, pretty much, I would always ask doctors that I'd see in the hospitals that if you if you won the lottery, would you continue to do medicine? And half of them would say they'd leave immediately, and the other half would say they'd go part time. Yeah. Um, and when the follow up question is like, okay, why don't you just leave or go part time? The answer was always about money, like, oh, I've got a mortgage, I've got etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so I knew from day one pretty much that okay, this is not the future I want, where I'm 
where my answer to that question is like, I'm stuck doing this job that I don't necessarily enjoy, even though some do, uh, kind of just for the money or not just for the money, but because, because sure. I need money to live. So I, I, I knew from kind of when I first discovered the four hour work week that, right. The objective is going to be to build these sources of, in, of income on the side so that when I do medicine, it's genuinely because I enjoy it and not because I need the money. And so that was in my mind as I built like a business through med school. And then the YouTube channel started as a content marketing driver for the business that I had. Sure. And it was only when the YouTube channel started to take on a life of its own that I realized, Oh, hello, this could be a thing. Um, yeah. And do you find, because this is something I've thought about as a creator, I think, and you talk a lot about this, obviously on the channel, the idea of multiple income streams or creating passive income or, or, or whatever you have to me, that, that actually frees you up creatively because then you're not, some people are slaves to the algorithm or slaves to the content treadmill, because that's, if they don't make a video today, like their income suffers. Right. And I think like, one of the benefits for me when I was thinking about writing the obstacles the way, and I've talked about this before, but my publisher offered me half what I got for my first book for what was supposed to be my second book. Mm. But I was in a position to say yes to that because I had multiple income streams, right? So I didn't need to think, oh, well, if I accept this, it's a big step backwards for me and I might not be able to afford my rent. It was Sure, it, it it'll it'll all work out in the end. I'm not dependent on this. I do find having the the sort of multiple income streams does create a form of creative autonomy that is important for doing good work. Yeah, that, that's that, that's interesting. So a, a few days ago, I ha- it was like a Saturday. I was here in the studio, and I I was meant to film a video, and I thought, you know what, I'm I need to I need to just spend like five hours journaling about what I want from my YouTube channel and the business and my life moving forward. And what I realized is that even though with these multiple income streams, you know, I can actually do what I want and sort of explore, explore my creative life and, and all that kind of stuff. I found myself continuing to be a slave to the algorithm because I wanted the numbers to go up. Sure. I was thinking that what the hell's going on here? Like, you know, I'm beyond the point of income streams where I, you know, comfortably sustain a, a decent lifestyle for a few years. That's all great. If I were, if, if you told me a few years ago, I'd be at this point, I'd have, I'd have had a stroke. And yet I was still just my default mode was, oh, well, 2 million subscribers is cool, but like 4 million subscribers is even better. And, sure. oh, you know, <laughs> this many income streams is good, but like twice as many is even better. And I, I kept on thinking that, oh, you know, if I had if I had 10 million in the bank, then I would get to a point where I feel like I've got enough money. And then I'm, <laughs> and, and I was just, I was just trying to reflect on this thing. This is just so absurd. And, and the conclusion that I came to after all this like journaling was, I actually can just decide to not care about the numbers, to not worry about publishing videos on a consistent schedule, sticking to sponsorship deadlines, because who cares? And I actually can now switch to only making videos that I f- that feel authentic and that I'm proud of. And I just had never really had that realization before. It was only in the, like on Saturday, uh, like two days ago, <laughs> where I felt like, oh my God, I, ca- I, ca- I can't just do this. I don't, I don't need to worry about the business growing and growing and growing. And who cares? That, that's, it, 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 it felt very freeing. Um, is is yeah. that hard in I, I got to imagine that YouTube is difficult in that it is so quantifiable, right? Like it, you're shown in real time how everything is doing. People literally give you like you're a gladiator in the Coliseum, the thumbs up or the thumbs down. <laughs> you know, like how how do you not think about those numbers all the time? Especially as you're deciding whether something's good or not. Mm, yeah, I think it's it's this balance between like not caring about the numbers on one hand, like philosophically, but also caring about the numbers because, you know, if, 
if the numbers are trending upwards, then that's good. If the numbers are trending downwards, that feels like it's bad. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't yet have a, a fully, a good, a, a good answer to this. Um, one, one way I'm thinking of it is I'm trying to convince myself to be more like mission focused rather than like numbers focused in that I've decided that my calling in life is ultimately teaching and YouTube and writing and doing courses and stuff. It's all like just teaching at various scales. And, you know, the, I, I came up with this like mission statement for our business, which sounds very like cringe when I say it, but no, it was like, no, it's important. Yeah. <laughs> um, to help, uh, we exist to help people live their best life by creating inspiring educational content. As uh, like, you know, that feels, feels pretty good. It feels very self-helpy, but oh, well, that's fine. And we had a session with a business coach a couple of weeks ago where he was saying, okay, what's your, what's your 10 year vision? Like where, where are we aiming? And he was encouraging me to put some numbers on it. Like, you know, are we aiming at a hundred million people or a billion people? And honestly, I, I, I was thinking about that and all like the stoicism type stuff that I've been drinking the Kool-Aid of <laughs> ever since I discovered the obstacle is the way. Um, and I realized that my 10 year goal for the business is to be profitable while helping people and having fun. And I don't care about putting any numbers on it. Sure. And just admitting that to myself made me realize, okay, actually this is fine. I can just choose to not care about the numbers. And so moving forward, like now when I, when, when a video goes up on the channel, I actually don't look at the analytics. I find myself, my thumb going on the YouTube studio app. And as it's loading, I, I swipe it down and go on Instagram instead or, or, or something, knowing that whatever the numbers say is not actually going to change the way I feel about this video. And as long as internally, I thought this was a good video to put out, then the numbers are irrelevant. At least that's the theory. It remains to be seen whether I, uh, whether this will actually work out in practice, but it's it's what I'm trying to go for. It's really hard. It almost requires more self-control to not have a goal than to have a goal and stick to it, right? Mm. Like, um, it, at least as far as these sort of easily measurable, quantifiable goals, like whenever I talk to an author who's telling me they want to sell a very specific number of copies, yeah. to me, that's a red flag because first off, uh, it seems... Uh, arbitrary. And it almost is always like a number they picked because someone else did a similar number, you know? Um, it's not like a million views is objectively a good number. It's just, that seems to be a nice bar. Right. Um, but, but also like, uh, that on the tenure thing, like I think about this, it's like, I mean, isn't the the main goal to still be doing this in 10 years, right? Like, mm. isn't that a harder thing to do? Like most people are just not even around. They just completely yeah. fall off or they quit or they get burned out or, or whatever. Like for me, like the idea of being an author is like being in the NBA or the NFL. Like um, if you're, if you're not cutting it, you get cut. Right. And so th instead of thinking about like, here's how many touchdowns I want to score, here's what I want my batting average is. I think the more basic goal is like, I just want to still be elite level at what I'm doing. I don't want to have fallen off and whatever it takes to get there is, is what I'm interested in as opposed to some number I pulled out of my ass. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's, the, there's two things that you said last time we spoke, which have kind of stayed with me that I, I, I think about fairly regularly. One was we talked about, uh, I think you had a blog post where you, you, you wrote about what it feels to hit the New York times list. And you yeah. said that it feels like nothing. Yes. And I was like, Oh, that, that really stuck with me because as I was embarking on the journey of writing my book, as, as, as we talked about, I had in my mind, oh, it would be really cool to hit the New York times list. And then I was like, okay, no, this is a dumbass goal to have because like, you know, it's outside of my control and it's like all of, all of the stoicism stuff, uh, stuff. Um, so that's, that's something I often think about when, whenever I find myself leaning in that direction of caring too much about that particular prestige metric, I think about that, that thing that you said. Um, 
And the other thing that you said, which was really interesting was that how, I, th I think you mentioned at one point you were thinking of dabbling in real estate and then you'd speak to your real estate friends and they'd all want to be, become self-help authors. And you realized yeah. that you were living the dream. And I often think of this, I'm like, yeah, you know, if I speak to all my friends who are also quote successful, they love the idea of being a YouTuber where you can just make videos about what you want. And that's literally the life I'm living. So I should actually, you know, optimize for playing that infinite game rather than thinking, oh, it'd be cool to have a startup, you know, that kind of stuff. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases. The time is now more than ever to embrace breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers. My wife and I have both been raving about this book, Furious Hours. Whether it's kids' books, my books, thrillers, history books, the Stoics, it doesn't matter. You can find whatever you're looking for on Audible. My belief is that books are important and amazing. I'm a little little bias, of course, as an author. And whatever gets them into your brain, I'm all for. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog. Visit audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. That's audible.com slash daily stoke or text daily stoke to 500 500. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. I talk about that in Growth Hacker Marketing. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com stoic. That's netsuite.com stoic. Or to give up control of the YouTube channel. So, you know, they, they, the goal is it would be cool to have a YouTube channel and make whatever you want. And then you have a YouTube channel, but you're not making whatever you want. You're making what other, you think other people want you to want. And yep. that's, that sucks. <laughs> yep. So uh, speaking of which, like, is your, are your most viewed videos, the ones that you think are your best? Oh, good question. Um, yeah, actually a large chunk of my most viewed videos are the videos that I felt, okay, this is a banger video. Um, there's very few videos I've done that have done well, where I didn't think internally that this was a really good video. Um, but what that, about the opposite? The, yeah, the opposite. I have had, yeah, vi videos that I thought were bad have done badly. <laughs> what about I, I, videos I think, you thought were good that haven't, that didn't do well? Oh yeah. There's plenty of those as well. Like, sure. <laughs> uh, quite, quite often I put out a video where I think, oh yeah, I, I think this is a genuinely really good video and it doesn't do well. And I'm like, cool, that's fine. Um, in, in some ways, like YouTube does break down the metrics a little bit. So you've got, you've got the view count, which is how many people clicked on it. And then sure. you've got the average view duration, which is how well did this hold people's attention? And usually the videos where I, I felt good about it were the ones that have the higher average view duration. And usually that means actually videos that are a bit more in depth, exploring something with a, you know, a little bit more niche than what I'd normally talk about. Um, I'm just trying to, trying to lean more into that feeling of me, my internal compass deciding that something is good or authentic or, or decent and not worrying about what the view or the, or the number says. Well, I was asking because I was talking to the, the guy who edits my videos, who's great. And he, I could tell he was a little discouraged because like three or four videos in a row hadn't done super well. Yeah. Um, you know, what, what is well, right. Is again, a made up number. Um, yeah. but it was interesting to me too. Like, I, and I've, I've had to sort of say this to my team, which is like, I'm not making a YouTube channel. I'm making videos. Right. So mm -hmm. like, I actually don't care 
where they get the views. And I also don't care. Like, I'm also not interested in getting the maximum number of views. I'm interested in teaching things that, you know, if, if, 1,000 people really got it versus yep. a million people watched it and only 1,000 people got it. That would be the exact same thing to me, except ego, right? Ego is the mm-hmm. thing that that makes us go, a lot of views is obviously better. That's success. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's a good, that's a good way of thinking about it. That's, the, that's one of the things I really like about your videos. Like they're not very YouTuber, YouTube-y. They're more like kind of getting a peek inside your mind. And actually, this is your, I think you had like one that was like half an hour long about your note-taking process. And I loved it. I was like, oh my God, this is like incredible stuff. Getting to see inside the mind of Ryan Holiday, which is a video that's so niche that probably, probably not to do particularly well on YouTube, but I'm glad you got it out anyway. Well, no, that's, that's the other thing that I think we overlook, which is like, sort of, who are you trying to appeal to? I remember Tim Ferriss said this to me once. He was like, look, would you rather, um, you know, be famous to 5 million people, or would you rather be famous or re- well-respected by the 5,000 people that attend Ted comp, the Ted conference every year. Mm. And the idea that there are sort of different rooms that you can be well-known in is an interesting thing that I have found in my career. So like, there's certainly people I know are people whose books I've, I've like, here's a weird experience. I've written books for other people that have sold better than my own books. Right. So, so it's a weird experience where, um, you do something that's genuinely you, uh, that's got your name on it and it does less well than something you don't put your name on that you care Mm -hmm. less about. Um, but if I had to pick which one I wanted to be myself or that other person, I would pick myself because I know the rooms that my work has resonated in. And so the idea that like something could do 10,000 views to the right 10,000 people or something could do 10 million views, but not include the 10,000 right people. Mm. That's an interesting thing. So I lo- that you like the note card video, like that's who I was making it for, mm. not for people who are not interested in that. Mm. Nice. But you're a systems nerd, right? That's what I, some of your <laughs> best videos are you like... And and I remember I asked you like sort of how do you do these how do you do something about a video and you were like here's my thirty item checklist for how I think about a video so is that is that always how you thought or is that a skill set you've had to develop for YouTube? No, I think I think it is always how I thought. I think when I was when I was younger, I was very interested. I was always very interested in teaching, and I would find that it's a lot easier to teach something if you can boil it down to some sort of system, like three steps or four four parts to the framework. And so as I was going throughout school, when I was helping younger, younger students and also through med school, when I was teaching younger med students, I was always coming up with sort of one system or another to explain something. Then I realized like once I started the YouTube thing that, hang on, this can actually be systemized. And then I read a, I read a few business books, like the E-Myth Revisited and, and things like that, which talked about the power of building a system. So then I was like, all right, cool. This isn't just me making stuff up as I go along. Systems design is actually a thing. So let's lean into that. Um, so now we try and convert everything into a system. And, and weirdly, actually, I find that when I do a video, if, I, if I've got a few ideas in my head of like, okay, I want to cover these like four, four points. If I just turn them into a system, like the FLOW method or, or whatever, it is, like people resonate with that so much more when you can name something and say that this is a system rather than the reality, which is that this is just a few ideas that I've kind of cobbled together and I hope, I hope they work for you. So 
I, it's weird because I'm both a systems person and not a systems person. Um, like, so I have my note card thing that I do, but it, which is very methodical. Mm. But then, you know, people often ask me like sort of what tech tools do you use? Blah, 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 blah. And I'm, I'm sort of very rudimentary in that sense. Yeah. Do you think, do you think there's, I, I've always wondered, or I guess been suspicious if part of why people obsess about systems or tools is that it is a substitute for like actually sitting down and doing the hard part, like coming up with what it is that you have to say, or that it's just a way to get distracted with like all this sort of setup mm. and, and not sort of just putting your ass in the chair and doing the thing. Yeah, I think that is actually a big a big part of it. I, I see this in my in myself uh, probably a year ago, a year or so ago, when I was deep down the rabbit hole of researching productivity apps and note taking systems and Zettelkasten and all this fun fancy stuff, and realizing that as a as a nerd, I enjoy reading about systems and I enjoy the feeling that you know, and and partly why I, I watched your video was like, oh, what's the secret source? <laughs> yeah. Let's find out Ryan's secret source. Like, what's the system that if I adopt the system, suddenly suddenly I'll become a magical best-selling author. Uh, and the system is just like a whole load of hard work with yeah. that just happens to be on flashcards in your little boxes. I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> there's, there's no getting around the fact that this actually takes a large amount of work. Um, and so actually I've, I've found myself uh, gravitating more towards simplicity on the tech front as well. Like these days, the only real note-taking app I use is Apple Notes. Uh, I had dabbled with Rome, dabbled with the Zettelkasten stuff. We, we use Notion for like team stuff because it works nicely for that. But I find that if I just want to open up something and start writing, even when it's like chapters of my book, I'll just start them off in Apple Notes because I just know it works. I know sure. it's cross-platform, I know it's easy. And I feel almost embarrassed screenshotting it and sharing it on YouTube because pe people, I'm supposed to be some kind of productivity nerd uh, who has all these ridiculously elaborate systems. And actually, I'm, yeah, Apple, Apple Notes all the way. <laughs> well, it's sort of like people set up these sort of Rube Goldberg machines uh, instead of just like getting to the fastest thing, which is, yeah, just sitting down and doing the the work like we yeah. we don't the the writing sucks or whatever the, the <laughs> making the video or coming up with yeah. the idea that that's the hard part so i think sometimes we it's like we add all this stuff on top uh i don't know why but we do Ooh, i have an example about this um so uh, recently we put out a video on the youtube channel that we had to delete because it was just like objectively bad clickbait title bad bad content not authentic and that led me on a whole thing of like figuring out, okay, how do we get to this point where we made a, a video that was just so bad that the comments were like 50% dislikes and had to, had to be taken wow. down. Um, and I realized that what my issue was is that ever since I discovered the power of like being able to hire people and delegate and outsource aspects of, of, of create creation, I went too far in the direction of thinking, oh, let me build a system uh, and hire people to fill the system such that I never have to think about a video idea ever again. And like my, I, I imagined my dream scenario was one where I could sit down on my desk, speak to a teleprompter and just churn out content. Yeah. I was like, all right, cool. Let's work towards that future. And so we hired writers and like researchers and all this, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I realized that, uh, you, you know, we, we had like an, a, the, the team staged an intervention zoom call a few weekends ago saying that, okay, Ali, we, we've got a problem. The content is starting to lose its charm because you're not showing up. You're not sitting down and doing the work and coming up with ideas in sort of, uh, kind of forming, forming them into videos because that is the work and that is the hard part. And I thought I could outsource and automate and systemize the hard part. And I realized, oh my God, like this is actually just was, was so misguided. So now we've kind of done a whole 180 on that. And I'm now getting so actively involved back in the content 
And actually I'm leaving the management side of the team and, and stuff to other people in the team who are better at that stuff. So I can just focus on actually sitting down and doing the work of, of doing the content thing. So I think that, that, that really resonates that even researching systems, even kind of building uh, human systems, hiring and delegating is often a <laughs> substitute, at least for me, for actually sitting down and doing the work. Well, and it kind of goes back to like, you didn't leave medicine to have a YouTube channel that you don't work on. Right? Like, like you, you left medicine because you liked coming up with and making videos more than doing the other thing. So what kind of life it is, is it where you've also outsourced that, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it, you could call it retirement, which might yeah. be, you know, something you do at some point, but like, uh, it is a weird thing. I mean, with writing, you, you get successful at it and then you can fill up your whole life. Uh, with lucrative things that are not that thing, or mm-hmm. you can even pay people to do that thing for you. But I just, I always try to remember like, but that's the, that's the thing I like doing. And by the way, that's the thing that I'm, if not the best at, I'm at least world-class at, or we wouldn't be here, right? Like we wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't be able to hire people to do it for me if I wasn't yeah. uh, like, if I hadn't done something new or original and how I do it. And what's, yeah, what's the point of succeeding at a thing if the reward for that thing is you don't do that thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. Especially in the, like in terms of the whole like, you know, retirement thing. I you know, what what that ended up looking like was back-to-back Zoom meetings every single day. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, hey, this is not <laughs> this is not fun. Cuz you're still you're still working, yeah. you're just not working on the thing you actually love doing. Yeah. Yeah. But hey, hope, uh, we, we, we've now blocked up, blocked out large amounts of time in the calendar for deep work that no one is allowed to book meetings in. Having all the meetings on Mondays, like it's uh, trying to trying to work towards the system. Similar to, I think, what you've got, you know, wake up in the morning, do a few hours of like four hours or whatever it was of writing, hang out at the farm, go for a walk. That, 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 that seems, seems like a good life. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think about it as like, what do you want your life to look like? Work mm. being a part of that life. The mm. idea that you would have a really unhappy life for a large period of time and then go do the thing you actually like seems to me to be a risky bet. Yeah. Deferred life plan. <laughs> Very risky. Yeah. 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 Um, so speaking of productivity, I mean, obviously you, you do get a lot done. If you had to think about like, what are the biggest tools for you as far as being more productive? Like mm. if someone's like, I'm just a mess. Like my life's yeah. just a mess. Where would you start? Oh, okay. Um, so there's like one underlying theme and then a few tools that help. Uh, the underlying theme is for me, I found that actually just optimizing for what's fun has been the single biggest hack for my productivity ever. Um, and finding like that, uh, partly that's like choosing to do a thing, which I happen to find fun you know, follow your passion stuff. Sure. Uh, but it was, it's, it's, it's only recently that I've had the freedom to be able to do that for the rest of my life. It was doing things other people slash the schooling system was telling me to do, but even in those finding ways to make them fun. Um, and so now my, my advice for most people, if they're struggling with productivity is find a way to make it fun. Uh, that's all, you know, all easier, a lot, a lot easier said than done. Um, in, in terms of specific tools for, 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 for getting more done, single biggest tip I found is, um, something I came across in a book called make time by Jake Knapp and John Zaratsky. They call it the daily highlight. I think similar to Gary Keller's idea of the one thing, like what, is, what's, what's the one thing I actually want to do today. Sure. And I ask myself this every morning, like what's the one thing? All right, cool. Right. Write that down. And honestly, if, <laughs> if I could actually just do that one thing, that's most important to me every single day for 365 days, I, that would completely move the needle on my productivity. Um, so if I only could choose one thing, that would be what I would, what I would suggest. If I could choose two things, 
it would be uh, deciding what that one thing is and then putting it on the calendar <laughs> because when it's, when it's on sure. the calendar, it's going to get done. And if it's not on the calendar, it's, it's not going to get done. Do you think about, uh, I, I guess this, this connects to the idea of the one thing, which I think about is like, and this also goes to the point about delegating, which is like, mm. what is the thing that only you can do, right? Like to me, that a, a great organization exploits the law of comparative advantage, which is mm. that everyone should do the thing that they are best at, right? And then we all come together and then we're this sort of superhuman or super organization where you have a bunch of people doing the best thing. This is how a sports team works, right? Yeah. Not everyone plays whatever position they just assign people randomly. It's mm. like you have the best quarterback, you have the best linebackers, you have the best uh, safeties, you, you have the best the best players. So, um, but I think that's really important in in, especially if you're in charge of the team, which is like, what is your thing? Like mm. the thing that only you can do. And then how do you, as you said, make time for that, block it out in the calendar. Uh, and conversely, how do you hire people to support or take off your plate all the things that are not that thing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I did, I did one of those, uh, those like, uh, matrix exercises where it's like, um, things I love to do and I'm great at things I like to do. And I'm good at things I don't like to do. And I'm good at, and things I, what's that called? Can't remember. Um, it was, it was within a book called attraction by Dino, someone who was some, some, yeah, this book I was reading. Uh, and I, I did that exercise. I was like, Oh, okay. There's a lot of things in this, in, in the bottom two quadrants, i.e. things I don't like to do that I am good at slash not good at. Um, and I realized I actually could just write all of those down. And this was how I ended up finding a personal assistant. And genuinely, I feel like th these days, anytime I speak to a sort of creator or entrepreneur and they don't have a personal assistant, I, I try and sell them on the idea of just getting a part-time personal assistant. Because I think if you can offload those bits that you don't like that someone else could do, it just gives more of your time to do the stuff you enjoy. Yeah, and I I'm actually the opposite as far as scheduling. Like the way mm -hmm. I think about it is, the calendar, if it's empty, I know yeah. exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to wake up and I'm going to write and I'm going to read uh, and I'm going to spend time with my family. So the way I, I have a different relationship with the calendar, which is that anytime there's something in the calendar, I feel imposed on, like Ooh, it's violating yeah. that space. So this helps me and that uh, it makes me reluctant to agree to do things. Yeah. Yeah, I've I, I've I've been thinking in in that direction more recently. Uh, the whole hell yeah or no thing. I think uh, there was there was a great book I was reading. It's called um, A Minute to Think by Juliet Funt, a fairly recent book, and she's got this thing in it, which you know the 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 six week trap or something like that, where if you look at your calendar six weeks out, it's like surprisingly empty, and you think, oh yeah. hello. So if a commitment comes along, someone says, hey, can you give a talk to medical students at this university? Like you know what? Sure. Yeah. My calendar's empty. I'll do it. And then I get to there. I'm like, I realize, oh my God, <laughs> why the hell did I agree to this? Oh, the calendar is now full again. And so I'm trying to get better at saying, saying no to that sort of stuff, even that, though it is, even though it is fun. That's how October was for me because, uh, October or this fall was kind of, uh, for the last six or seven or eight months was like people saying we'll be out of the pandemic by then. Right. So people started doing events yeah. coming up with stuff in the fall. And uh, I had agreed to a, a, not a not a ton, but more than I usually do, because I think part of me said it's so far in the future. Part of me uh, assumed it'll get canceled anyway. Mm -hmm. And then it didn't. Uh, and then then it was like it was like I cashed. A, 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 it was like I'd written a check that then my body had to cash like months later. <laughs> yeah. And 
it seemed like it was financially worth it at the time, but then actually doing it, I'm like, I'm much more aware of the opportunity costs because mm-hmm. in the present, you're actually aware of what you're trading off. But yep. when you agree to do something 10 months from now, you think, well, I, there's nothing I would have wanted to do then, but yep. maybe you just would have wanted to uh, sleep in a little bit and, yeah. uh, you know, go for a walk and, and read a book while you have breakfast, right? Like you don't really realize what you're saying no to mm-hmm. when you're saying yes to things. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The, 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 this is an area that I've I've started to do some digging around in 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 researching in researching my book, which is this idea that when we think of our future selves, we endow our future selves with superhuman abilities. Like, oh, I'm feeling a bit tired right now, but tomorrow, my tomorrow self is not going to feel tired at the same time, and therefore, right. I'll do this thing tomorrow. Or eight months from now, you know what? Of course, I'll be able to do all these things. How hard can it be? It's just a you know, it's just a talk. I've I've done these a lot, um, and that is a big part of what causes kind of procrastination for people who, who suffer from it? Oh, this, this idea that tomorrow me is Superman, whereas today me is normal. And therefore I will put this thing off. But I think it also, uh, I, at least I, I find that for myself, it manifests in terms of booking things in the future. I thought, oh, f- future me will have loads of time for this, <laughs> even though current me doesn't. Yeah. Stephen Pressfield says, uh, nobody says I'm never going to write my symphony. They say I'm going to write it tomorrow. Yeah. And Marcus Aurelius ironically says the same thing. He says, uh, yeah. you could be good. Uh, today, instead, you choose tomorrow, um, and and that sort of procrastination uh, or or a lie that we tell ourselves about. Not only do we think we're going to have superhuman skills in in the future, we think we'll have unlimited time in the future. But in mm-hmm. fact, we'll be just as constrained eight months from now as we are today. Nothing ever clears off of your plate. Yeah. Oh, I I wonder if I could take you on a quick tangent based on this thing yes. you just said. Um, you seem to be able to cite a lot of quotes from memory. Yes. Um, and you also have an, this sort of fancy ass note-taking system on your cards and flashcards and things like that. One thing I was wondering is, do you find that your note-taking system creates connections between stuff that your brain did not do? Or is yes. your brain doing the work and the note-taking system not? Like, uh, I think some people think like I may have a photographic memory or, or I have a really good memory because of, uh, because I do quote stuff from memory. Um, people that know me would very much disagree with that. Like in practice, that's not how it is. I have two advantages. One, um, I actually like the stuff or it's a couple of events. One, I really like the stuff. So I'm really interested in it. Whereas stuff I'm less interested about, I have less recall, um, like people's names. Like I do that thing all the time where people will tell me their name. And I'll be like, oh, wait, sorry, what was your name again? And as they're telling me the second time, oh, I'm no. <laughs> not listening then either. Um, so if I'm interested in it, it, I have some recall. If I'm not, I don't. Um, but it's not just the note card system. And I think people sometimes think that's what it is. The note card system is the process by which I, I identify or I um, first recognize the information. Yep. But it's the fact that I have written a, a daily email every day for uh, six years. It's the mm. fact that I've, blogged every day for almost 15 years. It's the fact that I've written 12 books and it's the fact that I talk about this stuff in videos and interviews and podcasts all the time. So, so I think to someone, it's like, I'm just pulling this quote out of thin air from memory that I read six months ago or something, or seven years ago. Um, it's more that I'm constantly interacting with the material and the ideas in lots of different forms and formats. Um, and, and that's what creates the memory. Although I was just going through something 
this is um i was i uh the note card system is not perfect right like it at all so i kind of have the note card system i have the books that i read and then i kind of have uh uh, usually I have a research assistant who I referred to as my second brain, uh, the other day. Um, yeah. but I'm, I'm working on this chapter in my new book and I knew there was a, a section in this book, uh, in this series on Winston Churchill that I wanted to reference. And, uh, I couldn't find it in my note cards and I couldn't, I was, I was skimming the book. I couldn't find it, but I, so I called him and I was like, look, here's, um, here's an exchange that I'm looking for. It's an exchange between Hitler and Stalin. And they're talking about this thing. I don't remember what conference it was at or when they were talking, but I was like, there's some part of me that remembers um, that they were talking about 50,000 soldiers. I was like, find that for me. So I gave them enough clues and he came back and it turned out he was talking about 49,000 soldiers. So I was like right in the ballpark. And it was like, you know, chapter four of the third book or whatever. So I, I, the only the one place my system breaks down and why I have staff is that I'll have a vague sense of something that's sort of loosely there and then I'll find it. But now, now I could recite that, that story, not only because I'm writing about it, but because of the work that went into it. Now that's like, you know, imprinted inside my mind. So it's, it's kind of a combination of all those things that creates the recall. And how, how important for your, for your process is like, if you, if you scrapped the note card thing and you didn't take notes and stuff as you were reading, would that completely destroy your process or like, well, I think it's, it's the act of taking first off, it's the reading, folding yeah. pages, marking things, but I could probably just stop there. And then it would mm-hmm. just all be there. Like there's definitely uh, there was a story in the courage book that um, I knew was in a book that I had read um, before I'd started the note card system. So this would have been like, I'd read it in like 2005. Um, and so I did manage to find it and it was in the book and I'd taken the notes. So, so the, the, the reading and the marking in the books is probably 60% of it, but Mm. then it's the writing and the organizing and the having to interact with it multiple times. That is the, the last mile that's so much more important. Okay. Got it. That's what, and that's that's to me the problem with a lot of the digital systems is that you're not interacting with it deeply enough the first time to mm-hmm. create much in the way of a relationship. Like yep. um, if it's just something you're copying and pasting and it's going in this oh, yeah. <laughs> thing, you 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 might as well you have no idea. Yeah, it's 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 the same with with creating flashcards in med school, where if as as much as all the digital systems have advantages it's just too easy to create a digital flashcard. Yeah. And the fact that it's a nightmare to create a physical flashcard with a diagram is what helps you remember the fact that you've got stuff on a physical flashcard and remember the diagram. It may be that making the flashcard is more important than yeah. going <laughs> through the flashcards. Do you know yeah. what I mean? You can have almost a tactile memory because you wrote it down. Or, and that's mm-hmm. why I do it by hand. I mean, sometimes with a really long passage, I'll type it out. But even then I type it out, print it, cut it up and paste it on the thing. Because again, it's, it's the, the multiple touch points thing. Yeah. Fair play. So, uh, as we wrap up, tell us about the book. Obviously I know about it, but I'm sure mm-hmm. listeners would be interested in knowing what you're working on and, and tell us how the, the process has been. Cause to me, that's the most interesting part. Yeah. Um, so the book currently does not have a title. Uh, the working title is the productivity game, which I'm not a huge fan of. Um, I think the word productivity is quite tired. And actually Cal Newport did a piece on in the New Yorker, I think recently, like two weeks ago about this. 
Uh, but the vibe of the book is that the secret to productivity is to enjoy the process, to have fun. And the book is split up into three parts. Um, part one is the procrastination part. How do we beat procrastination? Uh, part two is how do we beat distraction? And part three is how do we beat burnout? And the solutions are, to part one is make it easy. Part two, make it fun. And part three, make it last. So those are like the three parts. Make it easy, make it fun, make it last. Um, we actually landed a, depending on when this comes out, a deal with an unnamed publisher in the US. Like very recently, papers are still being signed in the process. Exciting. Um, yeah, so that was, that was, that was cool. Um, and we had to deal with Penguin UK for a while, but then it, there was a whole process of like getting the proposal together and sending, getting, getting US, the US involved. And now finally, as of like last week, we now have deals on the table. So now the, the actual writing is starting. And I keep, I, I think back, to, uh, there was a podcast you did with Cal where you, you said that so many young writers come to you for advice about writing books and they just take too long doing it. And actually you should get a first draft out in six months <laughs> or words to that effect. And I was like, all right, cool. I've got six months from today to get out a first draft. So that's, that's how the process has started. That's fantastic. Yeah. I think if I was giving you feedback on the title, the problem with the productivity game yeah. is I have found, and this is increasingly more so as, as both uh, the market has evolved and just the yeah. more experience I have people a, uh, there's a certain percentage of people who are be interested in learning about the productivity game. Uh, most people want to learn how to be more productive, right? So like, uh, you know, like I think if a Malcolm Gladwell book came out today, like the tipping point came out today, I think it would not sell 5 million copies because mm. um, now people would want to know specifically how to create tipping points, right? Yeah. Whereas the, the sort of intellectual... Like yeah. you have to signal that this is not an intellectual discussion of an idea, but this is a, a set of lessons on how to apply a certain idea. So, so I would, I would sort of go um, promise first in the mm. title. Like, what is the promise? What are you giving me um, yeah. that will allow me to justify not just the purchase of the item, um, yeah but the time spent reading it. And that also makes it easier for me to tell other people about it, right? Um, okay. does, that, does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. And you don't think the subtitle, because usually the subtitle of a book does that, like the tipping point, and then I'm sure the subtitle was more descriptive and stuff. So I thought about this on my first book. Um, mm -hmm. I wanted to call it Confessions of a Media Manipulator. My, my publisher wanted to call it Trust Me, I'm Lying. Um, and I asked Robert Green, I said, Robert, um, I want to call it... Uh, Confessions of Media Manipulator, um, and, but the, the publisher has all this data that says, trust me, I'm lying is better. Um, and he said, um, he's like, have you ever noticed that none of my books have subtitles? And I was like, no, I Ooh. never noticed that. <laughs> and, and I was like, why? And he was like, can you name the subtitles of any of your favorite books? And uh, I was like, no, I can't. I mean, I you really can't. Um, yeah. I then proceeded to listen to my publisher instead of Robert to not to my eternal regret, but to regret. Um, and, and for the most part, I don't think about subtitles anymore. Some mm. of my books have them, some of them don't, but my view is that the title has to sell and the subtitle can provide keywords or context. But for okay. the most part, the title has to justify it because nobody remembers the subtitle. Yeah. What do you, what do you think of the title? Make it fun. It's, it's good. Uh, it's good. It could work. I think the question is who, what audience are you trying to reach? And mm -hmm. does that, um, it make it fun might signal the right message to a percentage of the audience, 
yeah. but it may signal the opposite of what you're trying. Like it may signal to serious people that yeah. this book is not for me, even mm -hmm. though it is. And so you have to come up with a title that, yeah. that, uh, accomplishes a bunch of things all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I'm hoping at some point in the next six to nine months, <laughs> something will magically a, a title yeah. will a title will emerge. Although I do tend to find that the the books are better when the title is discovered early because then you can write around mm -hmm. the title. You know, yeah. um, uh, you know, the Black Swan wasn't uh, a book about risk, and then he just slaps on this title. I mean, it's built <laughs> around the story, yeah. but. Um, you can, you can do it a lot of different ways. So, so, okay. So when, when are you, if six months is when you're writing it, do they have, have they given you a proposed release date? When, when can proposed we expect your release date is the middle of 2023. All right. <laughs> so, quite All a right. long way away, but yes. Well, you it's an exercise in delayed gratification that is very different than the YouTube world. Yeah. Very different. <laughs> Feels like it's a lot more pressured as well, but I'm, I'm trying not to think partly trying to think that way to take it more seriously than I would a YouTube video, but also not trying to take it so seriously to the point that the pressure becomes crippling. Yeah. It's, a, it's just a different kind of endurance in that you have to work on something every day, hmm. even though it, the out, this goes to the point about procrastination, work on it every day, even though the outcome is very far away and uh, work on it every day, even though it feels like you're making very little progress every day. Um, and that's why most people don't do it. You know, that's why most yeah. people can't cut it. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for the advice. I will, uh, I'm sure I'll keep bombarding you with emails closer to the time to be like, Brian, I need a title. <laughs> you got out. it. Man, this was, this was so awesome. I'm glad we connected. And uh, however I can help with the book, just hit me up. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Thanks so much for listening. If you could leave a review for the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. The, the reviews make a difference. And of course, every nice review from a nice person helps balance out the crazy people who get triggered and angry anytime we say something they disagree with. So if you could rate this podcast and leave a review on iTunes, that would mean so much to us and it would really help the show. We appreciate it. And I'll see you next episode. Guy Raz's How I Built This is a podcast where each week he talks to the founders behind the world's biggest companies to learn the real stories of how they built them. In each episode, you hear these entrepreneurs really go into their story. And Guy is an incredible interviewer. He doesn't just dance around the surface. He has real questions because he himself is an entrepreneur. He's built this huge show and this huge company. In a recent episode, they talked to the founder of Liquid Death, that crazy water company that's become this billion dollar brand. Follow the show on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to How I Built This Early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. And for a deep dive in daily business content, listen to Wondery V destination for business podcasts with shows like How I Built This, Business Wars, The Best One Yet, Business Movers, and many more. Wondery means business.